There is a um, a song that I hear on the radio these days, a, a Christian song that I've been hearing. Um, it's a take on the the song "I Need Thee Every Hour," and it says, uh, "My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you." You know that song? Um, I, I won't try to sing it right now because I'll botch it. I know I will. But um, there's this there's this great thing that brings us together in the Christian community, the, the the community of faith. There's one primary thing. It's a community of faith, which means God dependence, which means at the core of everything we believe, we believe we need God, that we are not islands. We can't handle it on our own. And frankly, it's not only that we need each other. It's not just that. It's that we need God. Right. And we find God through each other sometimes through the community. But sometimes it's not there at all. You know, sometimes we're just completely giving ourselves to the community, but we all need God. We all need God. And uh, that that sense of dependence is where God has us today. Um, And for me personally, uh, I've really felt that need over the last week and a half. It has been a a very intense last week and a half um, around here. And um, and yesterday I had a a teaching. I was teaching at a a, um, a seminar, a, a retreat for a church, a, a city church in Harrisburg. But we were at a campground, and I was teaching at the campground. And um, at the camp, I, I went into this thing feeling very unprepared <laughs> because it had been a long week. And uh, just the grief over, you know, the uh, the, the services with Wendy and um, and all that our church has gone through in the last week. And I went in feeling unprepared, but I knew that one of the things that was awesome is I knew that in this community of faith that um, I wasn't standing alone, you know? And I, there was people who were texting and were calling and saying, hey, we're praying for you. And I knew because of that, I knew that going into that thing, I wasn't going alone, that it was God's strength that was going. And God just did awesome things at this retreat. It was so cool. And I was spent. I had nothing left. You know, I was spent. And uh, and then we got home from the retreat, and I'm like, God is so good. And then I'm like, holy cow, what am I preaching on tomorrow? <laughs> you know, and, I, you know, it's been one of those weeks. And, and um, you know how, um, have you ever fired off an email that was premature? And then afterwards you were like, ooh, I wonder if that came across the way I intended it to come across. Or you, you said something to someone you love and you were trying to have a conversation and you were getting to a point, but you realized you went too quickly to that point and, and you didn't give it context. And then it ends up being heard in a way that was not at all the way you intended. And when it comes to sermons, one of the big things about sermon prep is not only getting into the word of God and trying to understand what it says and then how to communicate it. It also has to do with understanding the spirit in which God is communicating it and trying to embody that spirit in the message. And so a lot of the prep has to do with that. And so when one feels worn out, or underprepared, there is always a danger that the spirit of the message won't um, fit the spirit of the living God. And today, um, I, I just got to say that um, I'm kind of taxed. I'm feeling pretty spent today. And uh, it didn't get as much time. Got, I really was able to dig into this text, and I love the text we're dealing with. But when it comes to the delivery of this message, um, we need to make sure that God's spirit, as we were praying, Holy Spirit, fill the atmosphere, you know, We just need to pray that again right now, that God would communicate to us the way we need to hear it. Um, The the, the name of the series that we're in, that we're just starting, this is a mini-series, a real short one. It's called the ins and outs. It's called the ins and outs of community. Um, 
And uh, the ins and outs of community has to do with, uh, you know, there's this moment where the, the Bible talks about going out and coming in. That, uh, that, that may God protect you in your going out and in your coming in. When we go out and do what it is we're called to do, and when we come in, what it is that we're, we're called to do. Um, and so this series has to do with that. And we, when we do what we do and when we care with each other, how's that work, the inner workings of community? But the first message that we're dealing with today is called Sin in the Camp, okay? Which it's like, just look at that black screen with the white words and sin in the camp. That's intimidating. That's scary right there. And yet, um, the spirit in which God wants to communicate to us is a spirit of deep, deep love right now. And so we need to um, to go to God and ask that um, in these few minutes here that God will give us his spirit in the words that are going to be communicated. So um, I'm going to ask us to go quiet for a minute here and and that we would each ask that and then um Corey can I put you on the spot I'd like you to close us praying that God would do that if that's all right thanks Amen. In the Old Testament, there's this moment, the, the, the term sin in the camp. You know, there, you remember that story in the Old Testament? Who was the person who had sin in the camp? You think of one that stands out. Achan. There it is, man. Old Testament. This is one of those brutal, brutal texts in the Old Testament that we have a very difficult time processing. See, what happens is, is Achan, the, the Israelites come into the promised land and God is going to clean house in the promised land because this promised land is a land that he's not just giving to Israel because they deserve it or something. You know, Israel doesn't deserve it. It's God's grace that they're being given it. But, but there's multi-purpose. He's not only blessing the promised land. What he's also doing is he's cleansing that land because there's been horrific stuff that's been taking place on this land for a long time. And he says that he's going to clean it. And so part of what's happening is, is when he brings Israel in, they're agents of his cleansing of this land. Okay. And so what he says is, is you know, the walls of Jericho are going to fall. I'm going to open up the Jordan River. You're going to go across. You're going to march around the city. The walls are going to fall. I'm going to go with you. He says, I'm going to send my hornet out in front of you to, to, to run it, to, 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 to destroy your enemies out in front of you. And then they go to this one, after all these great victory, this great victory with Jericho, then they go to this next city called Ai. Okay. And, uh, that's not Allen Iverson, by the way, for those of you who are old school Philly fans. Um, AI is the name of the town, okay? And so they go in there, and what they're supposed to do when they get there is they're supposed to annihilate it from top to bottom. And this is hard, even that part of it's hard for us to understand, you know? But God's cleansing it, okay? That's the whole idea. Get rid of this sin, whole idea. So they go in, and they're not supposed to leave anything standing. They're not supposed to leave anything alive, and they're not supposed to take anything with them, 
That's the command of the Lord. doesn't matter whether they understand it or they agree with it. It was just God's command, you know? And they didn't do that. Well, everybody did except this one guy, Aiken, who grabbed some stuff and he kept it. Now, he couldn't put it in his basement and he couldn't put it in his attic or in his garage because he didn't have any of that because they were living in tents. So he digs a hole under his tent and he puts it down in, in there and then he covers it back up and puts his tent over top of it. Okay. And it's just the basics. I mean, it's like gold and, and stuff like that that he takes. I mean, just if, if you're going to, if you're going to steal stuff, you steal the stuff, the, the valuables, right? I mean, it's, this isn't, it wasn't anything sacred or spiritual. It was just, it was gold, you know, of course, what you're going to steal. And so he buries that. Now, he thinks he is going to get away with it. Of course, he doesn't because he can't hide from God. God calls it out. Everyone has to march in front of the leaders of Israel until they find the person who it is. Terrible way to get found out, you know? And they find him out. Now, here's where the story gets really, from, from our easy, our simple perspective where it kind of gets demented, um, is that once they find him, Achan, they kill him. But they don't just kill him. They kill his wife and they kill his kids um, and because God told them to. And how do you deal with a text like that? It's a very difficult thing to deal with a text like that. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to mention about that um, before we move on. The, fir- the, the first thing that I want to mention about it is that when it comes to the brokenness, in Genesis chapter 3, the first two chapters of Genesis are awesome. It's utopia. It's the way we were designed to live with God in euphoria in the Garden of Eden, deep relationship with God. And then there's the fall of, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, it starts off with saying, the crafty serpent. That's how this, the, you know that things are about to go bad when it says the crafty serpent is how it kind of kicks off Genesis 3 and things begin to go bad because our hearts are drawn away and we turn away and what happens is, is our minds totally lose it and we don't understand God's character anymore. So from that point on, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way until Revelation chapter 19, when we return back up into the new Jerusalem and are reunited in euphoria again with God, that whole Every, almost all of scripture, except for just the bookends, has to do with sinful humanity and God revealing himself and us trying to get back to an understanding and a relationship with God. And that doesn't happen overnight. And in the same way that, um, you know, when kids are born and they're born, obviously, pretty quickly, kids have something inside of them, all of us did, where we didn't, we did things that we wanted to do that others didn't want us to do. But we had to learn not just what's right and wrong, but we had to learn structure of what's right and wrong. We had to learn the details. So one time, Evan, when we were when he was little, uh, we were at a, another house at the time at another church. We had a flower bed, and uh, it, it, we had Gerber daisies in the flower bed, and he wanted to pull the the flower off the top. Well, you know, Gerber daisies you just get one flower, really. You know, and so if he pops it off, there's nothing left except like cabbage, you know, <laughs> which doesn't look that great, you know. And so he goes to, and I, I was like, no, you know. And he would give his hand a little tap so he knows. And he, and he looks up and kind of looks at us. And he goes to the next one. And he touches it. And he looks up at me. And I was like, no. And he goes to the next one. And he goes all the way down the entire flower bed, touching everyone and looking at me. And I kept saying no. And then after he had touched everyone, he's like, 
Okay, and then just went and played. Like, he needed to figure out how the boundary works. Okay, what, how does this work? What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? It's one thing to say, there's evil in my heart and I want to do my own thing. It's a whole other thing to actually learn what's right and wrong and the details of that. And so when God reveals the law to Moses and the Ten Commandments, that's a progressive revelation bringing us back into a right-standing relationship with God. After the fall, we were just messed up. And it went, it sunk hard and fast because we were out of fellowship with God. We didn't understand relationship with God. And remember, when they took the the knowledge, they ate from that tree, it was the knowledge of what? Good and evil. But they just got this sense of the evil. They didn't actually know. They didn't have the wisdom of God and couldn't understand all the details of right and wrong. And so their hearts condemned them And yet they didn't understand law or how to be free within the law. And so it's this progressive revelation all throughout the scriptures. When we get to Jesus, we understand a whole new level of grace and freedom and all of those things. Okay? But God had to, and all the way back then when people were, can you, we can't imagine what it would be like to live without electricity, without plumbing, to live without heat in our house in the middle of this kind of weather and all of that. We can't even fathom. Can you imagine if we had to, to go back in time and then figure out how to live? We're built upon so many things that are beyond, behind us generationally. And in the same way, our understanding of the grace of God is built upon God revealing the law. And unless that law had been revealed right and wrong, we would not have an accurate understanding of grace. Now, when it comes to God dealing with sin in the Old Testament, he is hardcore about dealing with sin. And our understanding of grace, if it loses the perspective of the understanding of how God dealt with sin in the Old Testament, then we will also lose awareness of what grace actually means. Okay? And so... I want to fast forward to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Achan and his family are killed. Remember when we had the, the David series um, that Uzzah, his buddy, reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant? As soon as he touched it, he was dead. That's like that Old Testament thing. But when you look at the New Testament and dealing with sin, remember after Pentecost, after the church community, Ananias and Sapphira. And here they are, and they're coming and bringing their 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 uh, money to the church to help support others. But they lied about the money that they were bringing. Because they wanted to have praise and applause for giving so much to God in a self-righteous way. And yet they were lying and holding stuff back, for their for, and, and their hearts were divided. And at the beginning of the church, God does something. After the grace has been revealed and there's a new covenant with God and there's all sorts of forgiveness and cleansing and mercy for all, in the middle of all that, God does something to remind the church. What does he do? He kills him. It's the same God of the Old Testament. He drops him right there. And we say, how could that be the God of the New Testament? Well, because the God of the New Testament and the Old Testament aren't a different God. They're the same God. And he still believes the same thing about sin in the New Testament that he believed in the Old Testament. It's just our relationship and how we deal with that has matured. But he doesn't want us to forget what sin is actually all about. Okay? And that's why when it comes to, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, there's this, there's this moment where, well, actually even before that, you remember Jesus, when it comes to, he has this conversation about if your eye offends you, what are you supposed to do with it? Pluck it out. Wow, that's okay. All right. If your right hand offends you, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. That is harsh 
dealing with sin. It says, if there is sin in my life, I'm going to cut my hand off, pluck my eye out. And of course, the way we typically deal with that is how? We say, well, that's, that's like hyperbole. That's metaphor. That's a figure of speech, you know? And even if it is a figure of speech, <laughs> do we get the figure of speech that that's how much we're supposed to see sin as a problem, you know? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when we went through this 1 Corinthians series um, at the end of, uh, throughout last year, we got to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it was this brutal moment because in chapter 5, it talks about how to deal with sin in the community. And it says, should we judge people who are outside the church? And clearly, the scripture said, no. Who are we to judge people who are outside the church? And then it says, but who are we to not judge those who are inside the church? And we say, what? <laughs> How could you possibly say that? But this wasn't a judging of jealousy or right and wrong. What it says is, is if there's sin among you that's affecting the community, then we have to confront that sin and we have to deal with it or else it will affect the community like gangrene, you know, like an infection. It'll deal with it. We have to deal with it. And so that's what the scriptures call us to. And when it comes to sin in the camp and the ins and outs of community and why we gather together and why we're a church, why we're not, you know, I've, I've had people who tell me church for me is on a tree stand, you know, in the middle of nature. Church for me is a golf course. And if that, if that's the case, I know where church is for me. It's on a surfboard. You know, in the ocean. And I get what people mean. I connect most easily with God emotionally and spiritually when I'm out with God in nature. How many of us can say that? Here, here, you know, like it's way easier to connect with God when it's just me and God than when it's with all of you guys. You know, the, I mean, honestly, there's, there's something hugely beneficial about worshiping together and encouraging each other, but there's also something very easy when it's just me and God and I don't have to factor in all the other equations, you know? And, and yet, why do we gather together? Because there is much more available in the community in our relationship with God than there is just on our own. And we need that, and it's not easy, it's hard work. And one of the things that's available in the community is that as one, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another, so one man sharpens another. And what that means is, is that we refine each other. And in the community, in the context of community, we can't lie to ourselves as easily. You know, we are held accountable and, and that, and that's not about judgment in the sense of condemning someone else. It's about helping us to truly see ourselves. Okay. It's about accountability in the best sense of the word. All right. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time is I want to look at two texts of scripture and I'm not going to have you stand for these because I'm going to walk slowly through them and have conversation about those. And then at the end of that, I'm going to give a little more explanation about them. That's what we're going to do the rest of our time. The first one is in James chapter 3. And so I'd ask you to turn with me to James chapter 3 and starting in verse 13. Again, if you want to follow along in the Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Um, and uh, you are welcome to have one of those and keep it and take it home. There's also words on the screen. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Just ponder that question for a second. Who among you is wise and understanding? And everyone raises their hand. <laughs> By his good conduct, 
let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, wisdom is seen in how a person lives. Because what wisdom is, is knowledge applied. Okay, so I can have knowledge, but when I know how to apply that knowledge, it becomes wisdom. All right? That's knowing how to apply knowledge. You can know all sorts of stuff, but that doesn't make me wise. Right? That just makes me knowledgeable. Wisdom is being able to use that right. And what it says here is meekness, using it in meekness. What's the word meekness mean? Anybody know? Gentleness. Very good. So when we did the fruits of the Spirit, you remember we got to gentleness, and we said it's the exact same Greek word as meekness. You could translate it either way. They could have easily said the fruit of the Spirit is meekness instead of gentleness. What that means is I have plenty of strength. If I'm a gentleman, that means I'm a strapping man, and yet I restrain my weak, my my strength in order to be gentle with others. Meekness means I may have knowledge and I may have insight and I may have ability, but true wisdom uses meekness, restraint. Okay? It holds back. It holds back. All right? So then in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy, this is the verse for the day, by the way. So hold on to this one. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Oh, wait, that's not quite the verse yet. It's almost there. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So in other words, if I have lots of knowledge, but what I do with that knowledge is I kind of put it out there and be like, hey, so when he asked who was the wise one, that's me. He's like, go ahead and just don't say that. Um, Because that's actually about self-promotion, which reveals that's not actually wisdom, so you're denying the truth. Okay, he continues on. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Whoa! (laughs) He just dropped the D word, you know? Um, What does he mean by that? Well, because what he's saying is, is if wisdom is that I'm smart enough to figure out my life, that's unspiritual thinking. It doesn't acknowledge that there's a spirituality, that there's a wisdom that's far beyond what I can comprehend. There's no humility in that. There's no meekness in that. And what it is, is it's survival of the fittest. It's saying the smartest one here is going to be the one who gets to rule the roost. Okay. And so I'm flexing my smart muscles or flexing whatever muscles I have. And he says that causes division instead of unity. And that's demonic because the the demons are always trying to divide us, you know, and we want to be unified and loving one another instead of divided and comparing and, and competing and all of that. Okay. So then it goes on in, uh, and here's the verse. Okay, here we go. Verse 16. This is the verse of the day for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There will be disorder in every vile practice. Okay. So selfish ambition. If life is about me and jealousy, if it's about comparing it to you, I wish I had this, you wish you had that, I wish I was that, you wish you were that, I'm thinking of me, you're thinking of me. He said, a church that has that in it will have complete disorder and will have every kind of evil practice. There will be no unity, no accountability. We won't be moving forward in our relationship with God. We'll be stuck and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And we're not actually helping each other move forward because we're all about ourselves and we can't have an, enough trust to help each other move forward. Verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above, that God gives, that is, is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. It's open to reason. Okay, we can talk about this. It's full of mercy. It extends mercy to other people and good fruits. We see good stuff coming. It's impartial. It doesn't, it's not just you or just you or just the ones I like. It's, it's impartial and it's sincere. 
Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, so this will bring about peace, unity, righteousness. Verse 4, or chapter 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's an awesome verse. Think about that for a second. What causes a fight? What causes a quarrel? It's the fact that the passions that are inside of me are warring within me. And because of that, I, I want to love you and I want to be cool with you, but I also want respect and I also want love and I also want you to treat me this way. And so there's part of me that's thinking about me with selfish ambition and jealousy and there's part of me that's thinking about you and the passions of my heart are in deep jealousy. And so in my marriage or in my work relationships or with my neighbors or at church or wherever I relate to other people, I have this tension in my soul that wants to be loving and unified and peaceful but I also want the other thing, right? And so it causes these problems. So that's what causes it all. Verse two, you desire and you don't have, and so you murder. Wow. (laughs) How many of you are killing people these days? Remember what Jesus says about murder in Sermon on the Mount? What's he say? What is murder? If you have anger in your heart toward your brother, if you hate your brother in your heart, then you have already committed murder. And this is what it's saying. If we're harboring bitterness, if we get angry and we have hatred, there have been moments when we have loathed other people, isn't there? You know, when we have just been like, oh, man, that person is driving me nuts right now. And according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that's murder. And that's what this is talking about here. It says you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Because what that means is, is I am frustrated with them because life isn't the way I want it to be. And so now I am frustrated with them. I'm murdering them because my life isn't the way I want it to be, okay? And then it says this, but you do not have, why? You do not have, I'm seeing if you guys are following along, verse 2, because you do not ask. So what is that saying? It says we're looking to each other for our circumstances to be what they need to be, but who should we be looking to? God. So we need to ask. And he's like, you're frustrated with each other, but you don't ask. And then we're like, but God, we have asked. And he's like, I have an answer for that one too. Here it is. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your own passions. God, why didn't you give me that Ferrari? <laughs> you know? and he's like, yeah, you're right. I didn't give you that. You know, And so the, the, what it is that we're praying for is a big deal. Right. I mean, we want if we want an atmosphere of love and we want to actually be able to care for another individual and we want God to cleanse us, he'll do that. If what the reason we're fighting is because of our own selfish ambitions. So then I take my selfish ambitions to God and say, give me my selfish ambitions. It's not like God's going to be like, yes, I'm going to spoil you with your selfish ambitions so that you guys can get along because it's not actually going to work out. Right. And so God's not answering that prayer. And it continues with the enmity between us. Okay. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Okay, so this is where he names it. He finally names, and, and this is where the, the place in the, in, the, in the sermon where we've got to make sure the email comes through right, you know, <laughs> the tone of voice comes through because James just locked and loaded on us and said, you adulterous people. He just pointed his finger and said it, you know. And what is he saying? He's saying if your heart is divided, that's called adultery. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said that if 
you hate your brother, it's murder. But then he also says, if you look at a woman inappropriately, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You know, I made this covenant with my wife that when it comes to romantic side of my life, when it comes to the, uh, you know, emotional romantic relationship, when it comes to that kind of intimacy, when it comes to physical intimacy, when it comes to all that stuff, that there is one person in my life. That's it. That's it. That's called a covenant. And if in any way I step outside of that, that's called adultery. And when it comes to our relationship with God, God says there's one person who calls the shots in your life. There's one God. That's what a God does. <laughs> you know, we worship God, God protects us, and God is like dad and sets the framework for our life, you know. And he says there's one God. And, 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 and if you have other gods and you serve other gods and you look for other things to be your satisfaction and you honor the principles of the world or anything else, then that means you've committed adultery. You've broken covenant with God, okay? Well, that's... Tough words coming from James, verse 6. I'm sorry, uh, continue on in verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, this is not talking about friendship with people. This isn't about people. The world is a mindset, okay? The world is a philosophy. The world is a stronghold. The world is a culture. And it's saying that whole selfish ambition, jealousy, that thing that is unspiritual, that thing that says wisdom is right here, it's mine for the taking, I got to make myself happy and I got to be God of my own life. Friendship with that sort of mentality is enmity with God, okay? So unless I'm completely submitted to God, if I start thinking I'm in control of my life, that's enmity with God. Just like when he says you can't serve both God and money, you know, remember that, that thing that Jesus says? I can't see money as the source of my power and see God as the source of my power. This is basic math. You can't do both. All right? So it says, uh, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it says, without purpose, the scriptures say, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? In other words, this. God, like a lover, like a, one who you're married to, should be jealous of our affection and our attention, not in the sense of like God is needy and needs us, but in the sense that this covenant relationship right here, it's sacred. It cannot be broken. And if it is, we have problems because the, our trust is built upon this thing here. Okay. And it says that God is jealous of us in that way. And so then it says this verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, here's the problem for me when it comes to temptation is that I feel empty, okay? There are moments, uh, let me read the next verse and then I'll explain it. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, all right? It just gets harder. Um, so this is what happens for me when, in my relationship with God. If I am at a place where I'm not in great standing in my relationship with God, and I don't mean that God's like harsh with me. I mean that I'm not experiencing the fullness of God's presence in my life, then I feel empty. And if I feel empty, well, then there's a problem because I have need. And then the devil comes around and all of a sudden looks really good. Really, really, really good. 
You know, and given that the context of this thing is talking about adultery and that God is, Jesus is the bridegroom and we as the church of the bride, think about it in, in these terms. That, that this, this woman, there's, there's no connection with her and God, with her and her husband. We're not relating well. I'm empty. I'm feeling no affection. I'm feeling no love. We're, we're not at a good spot. And then this guy comes along who seems to be treating me so nicely and promising me the world, you know. And all of a sudden, there's temptation, right? And then what he says is, submit yourself to God. Stay within that covenant. Give yourself entirely over to God. Resist the temptation of the devil. Don't look that way. Don't think that you can step outside of the covenant to be satisfied. You have to stay in it to win it. You gotta be in it. You gotta make it work. You gotta find a way to push through because I can't be satisfied outside of this covenant and expect it to go okay. I have to resist the devil. So draw near to God. Draw close to him. Don't separate from him because I feel empty or ashamed or something. Draw closer to God and he will draw near to you. Okay? And then it says this, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And this, of course, is our problem, is that we want both. You know, I want God, but I also want that. We have the double-mindedness inside of us. Almost there. Here's where it just gets so sad. (laughs) Verse 9, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Wow, Tim, I'm glad I came out today. Thanks. You know, why do we read passages this depressing? Well, because God wrote them and he wants us to read them. But also because what he's trying to explain to us is I'm in this adulterous relationship with the wrong mindset, with the wrong God, and the God is me or the devil or whatever other thing I'm chasing after. And what he's saying is the more I continue in the quote-unquote joy of that environment, the less likely I am to be able to draw close to God. And he's not saying that he wants mourning and, and nastiness in my life. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. He wants me to experience the fullness of life. Jesus says, I came to have, that you may have life and that you may have it to the full, abundantly. He wants us to be full of joy, overflowing with joy, our cup overflowing. But he's like, if you're finding your joy in the wrong thing, you need to stop having joy for a minute and start having brokenness and being like, God, I'm getting my joy in the wrong stuff and it's not going to last. It's going to run out and it's going to be messed up. And instead of being happy about this situation, I should be feeling bad about it so that you can heal me from it so I can get my joy in the right thing again. (laughs) And then if I get my joy in the right thing, we're good. Then we have everlasting joy, eternal joy, joy that knows no end, the overflowing kind of joy. And the point is not to take our joy. The point is to give us real joy. All right. I am going to make uh, a very quick reference to Ephesians um, here, and then we're going to uh, move on. If you turn to Ephesians 5, I, I was going to walk through this whole text, but, but we're not going to. Um, in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In other words... As we join the family of God and we step into the family of faith, he's saying, I want you to be an imitator of me. I want you to start to look like your dad. And the way that that works is that you love one another. 
Okay, because I am love. That's who I am. And so I want you to really love one another. And then he goes on from there and he starts to say, but sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and all these things, there must, it must not be among you. There must not, it, it must not even be named among you. It's improper for the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Man, Tim, this is awesome today. Thank you. Five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Wow. What is that saying? This is what it's saying. He's saying if we're actually going to love one another, if we're going to care for one another, and we're going to be people of God, then our life somehow has to start to look like that. Okay? And so the stuff that isn't loving and the stuff that isn't working, we need to expose to the light. And we need to have God begin to cleanse it. This whole thing of inheritance, it says you can't experience the inheritance of Christ with that stuff going on in our life. So the sin that separates us from God and from one another keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. Down in verse 17, I want you to look all the way down. Uh, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay? And this is, this is what I want us to see right here. And then one other thing in there. Um, understand what the will of the Lord is. If I am um, one, somebody who wants to be self-righteous and I want to feel good about myself because I'm really good, then I have this question I have to ask about sin and about righteousness. I have to ask myself, how good do I have to be in order to be better than all of you saps? <laughs> that's what I, because I got to figure out once I get to a place where I can feel good, I'm looking this way and looking that way. And I'm like, okay, I'm right about here. I'm good. Now I can be self-righteous and I can feel good about myself because compared to all of you, I'm pretty good. And so some people, when it comes to sin and righteousness, the way they gauge whether they're doing okay, so to speak, is by looking around and saying, yeah, I think I'm doing all right. You know, or, oh man, shame. I'm not doing too well. You know, and then, there, and then if I am, Selfish ambition, that's the jealousy side. But if I'm the selfish ambition side where I, you know, I want to be God of my own life and I want to enjoy life, but I still want God and that's the way my heart's divided. Then I have to ask myself another question. And that question is, okay, God, what's the bare minimum here? Right? What do I have to do in order to make the cut? Um, and what am I allowed to do and not allowed to do? I got it from here. I can figure out how to be happy in my life, but you got to tell me what the parameters are and I'll figure it out from there. Okay, and so those, but those two things are based on one mindset, and that's that I'm God. <laughs> that's what it's based on, that I'm the one in control, I'm the one who makes me happy. Then there's this other mindset, and it says it right here, seek the will of the Lord. And when two people are in love, and when we really trust another person, the question is not, hey honey, how close can I get to this girl over here and you be okay about it? That's not the right kind of question. You know, the right kind of question is, how close can we get? You know, what can make us relate even deeper and enjoy each other more? And if I believe that God has my best interests in mind, and if I believe that he wants the best for me, then the question for me is, what's all the junk in my life that's holding me back from experiencing more of God? And how can I ruthlessly eliminate that stuff from my life? Because I want to experience more of God. And then it says at the end of it, verse 21 there, it says this. It says, 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if I'm trying to be loving to the community and act like him, and I want to be reverent in honoring him, then the way that I need to love one another is by making sure that I am not doing things that are affecting the community negatively. Let me tell you how this works. And this is, this is the grand finale of this thing. This is super important here, okay? Is this part. My mom sent me a letter when I was in college, and I will never forget this letter, okay? I was um, a thrill seeker. I love to jump off big cliffs with skis on my feet, and I love to surf in the middle of hurricanes, and I love to drive much faster than I should, and I love to just go fast and hard. It made me feel alive, you know? And that was my thing. My mom wrote this letter to me, and uh, she said, in essence, I think that you love us. <laughs> Great way to start the letter off. But sometimes your choices make me wonder if you consider us when you do what you do. It's one thing if this is your life that you're choosing to put on the line. But I don't sense wisdom in why you're choosing to put your life on the line. And I certainly don't feel loved by those choices. My mom was not just trying to save my life physically. My mom was also trying to train me spiritually to be someone who loves other people. And in the community of Christ, we have to understand something. My responsibility in dealing with the sin in my life is not just about me becoming holy or something like that. God's forgiven us. We are all here because we are sinners. And we are all here because of that cross that Jesus hung on to pay the price for our sins. And God will never be impressed if I try to do good things for him. Our righteousness to him is his filthy rags. He won't be impressed by my righteousness or depressed by my sin. He's taken care of it. He's washed it. In my relationship with God, he can forgive me. He can let it go. It's all good. And because of that grace, I have the tendency to walk in this place where I'm like, God forgave me. I'm good. We're good. I just go to the mountains and we go outside and have this great experience with God because he loves me anyway. And I experience him and it's all good. And the rest of my life, as long as I'm not like punching somebody or hurting somebody, it's all good because I'm not hurting them. But this is where that all breaks down. It's that if I spend however I want to spend, then the mission of God is less funded. If I go into debt, because I'm a materialist, then the benevolence fund of the church is going to have to pick up the bag. If I'm sexually active outside of God's parameters for that, it seems like that's just between me and God. But it's not, because there are going to be hearts that are going to be broken. There are going to be definitions that our kids don't understand because they're watching in the community. There's going to be children that are born without the right support system, and the community is going to be left holding the bag. You see, what happens is when we engage inappropriately, this isn't about whether I'm doing right or wrong or about whether God's okay with me or not. God loves me and God forgives me. We all need it. We all need the grace and he brings us in. But if I'm going to live in wisdom and if I'm going to care about anyone else sitting in a pew next to me, then I have to understand I have to take responsibility for my life in order to love the person sitting next to me because we're in this thing together. And we can only go as far, not just as my own faith, but we are intrinsically linked in the family of faith. When one person in the family is messing up, it hurts the whole family. 
And that's why you can be a great athlete on the field, but if you're toxic in the locker room, coach doesn't want you on the team. And see, I can be in a a place where I'm like, I think I'm in good conscience with God, and I haven't done anything to hurt the person next to me, but the drag on my own spiritual well-being will have an effect on the community that will draw the whole community down. And it'll slow us down. And we have grace for one another in that because we all struggle with it. But some people get really frustrated when people don't take responsibility financially in their life and they choose to live in a way that puts drag on the government and on the community. I don't know anything about all that stuff. I'm not smart about that. What I do know is when it comes to the kingdom of God, if we take grace for granted and don't understand the seriousness of sin, We are mooching off of grace and creating drag on the community of God. And those who are trying to take responsibility will wear themselves out trying to compensate for those who are not. And that is a lack of love. And that is a lack of wisdom. And God does not judge us because God forgave us. He does judge us, but he gives the punishment. He doesn't punish us directly for that because Christ takes it. But there will be consequences, and we are not saved from those consequences. And we are not the only ones who will carry the consequences. The whole community will, and it will hurt. And people will have a harder time extending grace to each of us because we continue to cause drag. Do we understand? Here's the thing. I can't make myself righteous and I can't fix my problems. So then at the end, we're like, well, that's great and all, but I can't just man up and get it done, Tim. That's right. Which is why the passage continues to go on in James. And it says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's this medicine and it's called grace that leads to transformation. (laughs) You know, and that grace is the kind where God says to us, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants to give us a breastplate of righteousness that he puts on us. He wants to manifest in us a life that doesn't have to just always be forgiven, but a life that because it's forgiven has the platform to begin to live in success and live in joy and live in abundance. And instead of creating drag on the community, it's a fountain of resource for the community to move further ahead so that others who are hurting and others who are still at ground zero or below and who need a hand reaching out and helping them, that there's a enough grace latent within the community because of the righteousness that God's developing that we can handle that. But when the community is defined by the unrighteousness, then there's not enough grace to compensate for all of the junk. You know what I mean? And so there needs to be a covenant and a commitment in the ins and outs of community that says, I will do my part. It doesn't mean I'm going to be healed tomorrow. It doesn't mean that I can fix all my problems. But it does mean this, that I will acknowledge and confess that this thing that I'm engaged in right now is not the way it's supposed to be. And it shouldn't be that way. And I want a game plan to get out of it. And the primary game plan starts with me getting on my knees and saying, God, I'm sorry, and I don't want it to be this way. Please help me to fix this stuff. And he will, because that's what he does. Because he's a redeemer and a forgiver and a great dad. And one who, when I come to and I go with my head down to my dad and I say, Dad, I messed up. I'm sorry. I lied to you about that thing yesterday. And I acted like it was this was that. And he says, there will be consequences. You're grounded. 
But guess what? We're back in good fellowship and it's going to be okay. And all of a sudden, the guilt and the shame and all the stuff that really creates the drag in my life is gone and the punishment turns out that it wasn't that big of a deal and we're back in good fellowship and it's all good. And we are missing all across the church right now, not just this church, but the church in general, that open confession that says, okay, (laughs) I'm struggling and this thing here, let's just be honest about it. It's sin, okay? And I don't know how to get out of it overnight, but I am praying about it, and I ask that you would pray with me about it. And let's try to get past it, you know? That's what we need. An environment of grace that says all are welcome. And we love you enough to not leave you that way, you know? (laughs) But to help you get past it. Because we want you to experience the fullness of God. I want to hear a big, loud amen. Amen. Thanks, let's pray. Jesus, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. You know, I am not capable of creating righteousness. None of us are. And uh, I can't defend myself. When the, when the enemy comes and says to me and wants to create shame in my life, you know, and says, Tim, you're terrible. You do this. I, I don't have a defense. You know, all I can say is you're absolutely right. But I do have a righteousness and I do have a defense and it's Jesus. And anyone else can judge me, but man, no one has more right to judge me than Jesus, and he already forgave me. And we can't stand here and look at each other and like, you're the one causing the problem. We all are, right, God? But help us throughout the next week to really prepare, to really walk out in honesty and confession with you and with one another, what our struggles are. So we can just like name it and get over it and move on. And try to watch you redeem us. God, we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus. You know, um, as we go into this last song, there's one thing. Next week, we're going to be taking communion. Bread and cup communion here. We're not having our love feast, a big love feast we do, but we're having bread and cup communion. And when we do, we always say this line before people take communion. And it says, those who trust in Christ, who have given their lives, who fully trust in Christ, and those who are in good standing with their brothers and sisters, and those who do earnestly repent of their sins (laughs) are welcome to enjoy um, the bread and the cup. And the reason is because as we go to take that communion, it means, God, we submit to you and we submit to each other. And so we want to be in good fellowship. So I just ask that over the next week that, that we ask ourselves, we ask for some soul searching. And during this last song, just pray that. God, search me and know me. See if there be anything in me that's not okay. And help me to cleanse it. If there's bitterness in my life, if there's anger that's inappropriate, if my spending habits are bad, if the way I'm using my time, my sexual life, my thought life, whatever that stuff is, man, cleanse me. Make it pure. Help me to not create drag on myself in the community. Get it pure. And I want to come to this altar table next week. And when I take the bread and when I take the cup, it's not because I'm worthy of it. It's not because it's because I'm taking it because I acknowledge that this is the stuff that needs forgiving and cleansed and healed in order for us to be a good community. Think about it throughout the week. Pray about it. Journal about it. All right? Let's sing.